0: You're about to get lucky with the Bare Naked Money podcast, the show that brings you the naked truth about personal finance with your hosts, Josh Shelleck and Colin White, Portfolio Managers with WLWP Wealth Planners, IA Private Wealth. How are you, Colin? I'm doing great. How are you doing?
1: I'm ready to get naked. How about that? (laughs)
0: Well, I'm not sure that that's going to make it past the editor, but, you know, good swing.
1: (laughs) So what are we talking about today?
0: Well, there was some news came out uh, actually a couple of weeks ago now that uh, kind of caught my eye uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, Canada Pension Plan Investment Board is an organization I've got a lot of respect for. Uh, I've seen them speak and read a lot of their stuff, and they're the people in charge of the the Canada Pension uh, now. Canada Pension is the envy of the industrialized world because it's actually a publicly funded pension plan. So we actually have funding behind it. It's not coming out of tax revenue. So there's a very sizable amount of money being managed on behalf of all Canadians. And there's some really smart people making those decisions. But the news was that they had dramatically underperformed their benchmark in the most recent period. And there was a bit of a kerfuffle. People were flocking to it and you know, trying to assign all kinds of blame and, what mistakes they had made and this that and the other thing and it brought to me the topic of hey let's talk about benchmarking let's talk about indexes let's talk about what those things really are because they so often get misused and misapplied in in general life and uh so you're a real smart feller and i figured that if i asked you the question right so you know what an index is you might be able to to start start the classroom or what what is an index
1: yeah Sure, Colin. So a lot to unpack there. And an index at a very, very basic level. It's just a set of rules that define a basket of
0: investments.
1: And where does this set of rules come from? And we've been talking about it a little bit this week. It's not like the set of rules is handed down as a gift of God to the people or anything like that, right? Somebody is out there, an individual, you or me, an investment individual, a group of individuals, somebody is coming up with this set of rules that defines what this index is. And again, an index is just, just a
0: basket of securities. And normally what they're doing is like, Hey, everybody's talking about marijuana. We need a Mm -hmm. marijuana index. How are we going to do that? So it tends to be very opportunistic when they have those conversations. It's not just an academic procedure where they're going to go through and and try to have an even hand over the whole space. It's, what's everybody talking about? What can we sell? Oh, let's have a marijuana index. And then they put together their set of rules and everything else, and they make it look like it did come from the hand of God. Yeah,
1: yeah, you're right. And these indexes, they've just been proliferating over the last 5, 10, 15 years because As you said, there's an advantage or advantageous sort of point of view when creating an index because then they can go sell this index and use it to create investment products for the people. So I heard on a podcast this morning, which I don't know if I entirely believe this number, but there's 3 million indexes out there in the world. That (laughs) seems like an absurd number. I don't know how that could be possible, but even if it's 300,000 or 30,000, that's still a hell of a lot of indexes
0: yeah no absolutely and like as as they become more popular and as this whole conversation about beating the index you know is more and more on on Main Street and it's more taken as you know a good commentary on something and more and more people come to the come come to market with them and uh, I know it's been fascinating to watch some of the product that's come out lately so the the major indexes Josh I mean give me give me your comment on you know what percentage of that are, are rules and how much discretion? And again, there's discretion in the rules, too, but you know it's, it's not just a mathematical equation that puts a stock on an index.
1: Yeah. So the major indexes, you're talking about things like the TSX Composite or the S&P 500. The TSX Composite, we'll reference it a few times throughout this conversation. It's just a representation of sort of the largest companies in Canada. Uh, the S&P 500, the 500 largest companies in the US, uh, You know, give or take. Uh, and there's rules to be included on these indexes, so again, somebody's coming up with these rules. How much uh, for these these sort of broad based indexes how how strict are the rules you know there, there's a couple of defining things like they have to be filing quarterly and annual reports. They have to meet a certain uh, size to to be on that that index. So for the very, very basic indexes, there's some pretty basic set of rules that somebody's come up with. And they change from time to time, but usually they're pretty static. And those types of indexes are are usually a a reasonable benchmark for some parts of the market. And as you said, there's marijuana indexes out there. There's Bitcoin indexes, cryptocurrency indexes. There's just about an index for everything that you can think of. So they go from those very broad-based, sort of simple, uh, easy-to-understand set of rules to something that could be really complicated with you know, you have to hit all of these different hurdles and jump through all of these different hoops. And then maybe uh, eventually you'll be considered a part of this index. Uh, and some of those things are, are financial. Some of those things are, are purely based on the price of, of the, the investment that's going in there. Uh, could be a whole host of different things that that are criteria for that index
0: inclusion. Well, no, absolutely. And then, and then it gets down to the emphasis or how effective things are uh, with regards to benchmarking. Because this, you know, just to roll this back to the article that kind of started my thought process now. this role is, you know, and we use this internally as well. So we're always you know looking for a comparison. You know, so if, we're, if we have a strategy we're implementing or if we're evaluating a product or a manager, you now we will try to find a relevant index of so some description to do some kind of comparison work. But the, the devil's in the details. You know, oftentimes when you do a comparison, you'll come to a conclusion that you know this is this product doesn't measure up very well. Well, that's not the end of the conversation. Is you dig in and figure out why, what is what, What's the underlying reason? Because sometimes it, something won't compare well, but you get to the bottom, it's like, oh, I understand why, and I'm really comfortable with it not performing well for that reason. And you move on so it's it's a very deep dive I mean, we've gone through periods in, in the past where you know nortel made up 33 of the tsx <laughs> how much so if you don't owe nortel in your portfolio you're always going to be out of step with the index either good or bad and this goes back to the whole you know it's a marketing thing now it's it's really firmly entrenched in investors minds and institute institutional minds that you know there has to be a comparison to an index so If there's a metric out there who would invest dramatically different than the index, they're on a short leash because if they underperform for any period of time, then eventually there's no business case and they're going to go to business. It's bad for your career to be out of step for a long period of time. So the market forces will drive investment products and investment managers closer to the index because that's where survival is. You know, because the cyclicality of different parts of the market means at different times either growths in favor or values in favor or commodities are in favor. And these cycles can play out over exceedingly long period, uncomfortably long periods of time and cause people to, to jump to conclusions to say, "Oh, this isn't doing as good as the index, I'm out. And if I'm running a business, that's, that's bad for me. You know, so I can't be in the business of being really offside for the long time because then I won't be able to feed my family. So it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy when we do these comparisons because, you know, the indexes are held like, from the hand of God. Here comes an index when it isn't really. And everybody you know, agrees that we have to march to that beat. But, you know, there's very valid reasons why you might want to be different, especially when Nortel's 33% of the index you're comparing to. And, yeah. you know, it, well, did you, did you the Tesla getting added to the S and P had a little bit of an effect on the overall metrics of the, the U.S. market? You know, so little transactions like that uh, can cause cause ripples as well. Did you did you follow any of any of those changes that were made? Well, I, I think when
1: people see a, a name like Tesla getting added to an index, you there's some speculation that that's really going to drive up the price of that investment. So it's kind of come full circle now because getting included in an index should drive up the price of the investment, whatever's getting included there, which should make it even qualified by even a greater standard into that index. Uh, so it's it's kind of almost like a self fulfilling prophecy and it kind of snowballs, right? And that's that's what people speculated was going to happen with Tesla. It's like, okay, Tesla. It's already run up this much in price. It gets included in the index. That pushes up the price of Tesla even further because, again, we have all of these products, these investment products that are tracking that index. So as soon as Tesla gets added to the index, all these investment products buy, uh, hence pricing pushing the price up more and more. So now we're seeing that kind of reverse itself now, and it's hard to kind of suss out and tease out what is purely because. Tesla was getting included in the index versus what's just sort of natural price momentum or momentum of the underlying business. But that's certainly one thing that, that people are looking at these days. And so you mentioned Nortelcom, which is good because that was back in 2000 in Canada. And that's kind of an insane period of time. And, and it emphasizes to me why this whole obsession with indexes is maybe a little bit misguided. Because if you're investing in the TSX back then, the TSX Composite, actually, which was the uh, TSE300 back then. Uh, So as as we've been talking about, these things change over time. But if you were buying that index back then, 33% of your investments of your portfolio goes into Nortel. Is that prudent?
0: Well, as it turns out, Nortel went to zero. So no, that was a bad idea. And George, I love how you're able to, to build your commentary and make me feel old all at the same time. Like you were talking to me like I was coming out of a history class or something. You know? You're know, you right. I did live that. And that was a, a one of those moments in my career where I learned something that I'm carrying forward even to today. Because, again, I have a skepticism when people start talking about indexes because I know there can be things hidden under rocks in there that i'm really comfortable not looking like certain indexes at certain times and internally we're very happy looking unlike indexes for certain periods of time for certain reasons it's it's not a simple it's not a simple calculation at all and you know the etf space is really well i'm curious now, in the podcast that you're talking about did they reference the proliferation of etfs and you know spawning that that, that those those indexes was, was was there any kind of a connection made between those those two Phenomenon?
1: Yeah, I think there, there's a definite correlation between the sort of advent of, of ETFs and the proliferation of these indexes that the ETFs are tracking. Generally speaking when, when you look at an ETF it is tracking an index. You don't have somebody that's making what we call active decisions so deciding what to buy or sell. you have a, a set of rules that that ETF is tracking. That's the index. And so there's there's a definite correlation there between the two.
0: Yeah, here's the real rub if people are following along with us and they're buying into what we're saying because basically our message is that a simple index comparison is not terribly valuable. You know, it's, it's a more, much more of a nuanced thing, but the problem is as soon as you go into nuance then you're relying on somebody to tell you a story. Now, if they're using their story for the forces of good, you're in good hands. If they're using their story from the forces of evil, then, you know, you can be led astray. So, you know, while it's important to understand what an index is and how something benchmarks against that index, it's also important to vet the quality of the, the commentator who, who's telling you what that difference is. Because, again, it's very easy to build a very compelling story for commercial real estate. And how, you know, 19 times out of 20, this, that, and the other thing, you can build really big stories that seem to be based in data that have some fundamental flaws to them. So the the, the, the want to make it nice and simple compared to index, index good, is, is a really powerful human thing. You know, because as soon as you get into listening to a narrative, you can get off track. There's danger there. So there's danger kind of both ways. Uh, we, you know, within our group are just – you know, really, really focused on trying to, to, to take what we can out of index comparisons and leave on the cutting room floor the stuff that's not relevant. And it really is an art form, and it takes a whole lot of experience and a whole lot of work to do properly.
1: Yeah, so you keep saying and talking about how you got to be careful about what you're benchmarking against. For the average person, Colin, an average investor that is looking to accomplish their retirement goal or to buy a house two years from now, does it make any sense to compare themselves to an index uh, as a benchmark?
0: No, That's that's a fantastic point, Josh. I mean, you know, this, what you're using it for is important. So, you know, the, the answer is it depends, you know, <laughs> should you compare, you know, the, the savings account that you've got going for a house to what the TSX is doing? It doesn't make any sense, you know, but should you maybe take your long-term retirement savings and take a look at what the broad markets are doing and see if that money is relatively in step? That's not a terrible exercise to go, and it will certainly foster some questions you know, of you to ask of your advisor or ask of yourself as to, you know, why am I out of step? You know, For the example that we were talking about earlier, it's like, you know, hey, I'm not keeping up with the TSX. It's like, well, you don't own any Nortel. Okay, I'm happy not owning any Nortel. I'm okay being on a different page. That's good with me. You know, so those are the kind of decisions. but. You're right, you know, people take a look at their accounts and they've got a nice balanced portfolio, the TSX does 20%. They go, how, how come my account's not up 20%? Well, your account wasn't invested in the TSX. It was invested in a, a global basket of stocks and bonds. I like guess different asset classes, different currencies in there. And the, the human condition of all well, part of it is the media is well. They're going to report the biggest number. So whatever market has done the best, that's the number you're going to see. And you're always going to anchor to that big number. And if the big number is 15% and your account's only up 8 Oh my God, that's terrible. Well, no, that that was the NASDAQ. You know, do you want to buy all high-tech stocks and go on that ride? Probably not. You know, so again, it's because the of what gets reported as being the most sensational things, it's very difficult to bring it back to what you're saying, Josh, for people to use that in decision-making for how they should run their own finances. There's a lot of buses you got to get on to get from one of those points to the other and have everything kind of pulled together for sure. Yeah. Well, the other the thing, other,
1: sorry, go. Yeah. With the CPP, as you, you kind of introduced at the outset, and be, its benchmark, its index, how did it compare against its index or its benchmark? I don't think CPP, and correct me if I'm wrong, call, I don't think CPP is looking to beat its benchmark every single quarter or every single year. They know that that's not a reality. Well, it's run by really
0: smart people, so internally, yeah. They they do know that, but the overlords that they answer to are looking for some kind of a, a performance report. And so when they're out of step, then they are going to have to provide that narrative as to why. And you know their overlords are going to have to have to accept that story. But the other thing, again, and this kind of snowballs into a, di- a bit of a different topic, but you know the CPP is a ridiculously large pension fund for all Canadians with an infinite timeline. So like they're buying airports, they're buying bridges, they're buying all kinds of things that the average investor can't buy. And there's a school of thought out there is like you should invest like the pension funds, which is DS, frankly, because again, if you've got a $250,000 rent that you're using to pay your rent, you don't want to buy an airport. Airports aren't good investments for you. You know, you need something way more liquid than that. So the within the, the CPP, they've, they've got all kinds of really different benchmarks because you know, the performance evaluation is a thing. Like you do have to pay a little bit of attention to, you know, am I right buying the right airports? That's a valid question. So there has to be some kind of measuring stick that you put next to that, or your phone may go off. So you know, benchmarking. It's not simple. It's not easy. It's worth doing, but it takes a little bit of uh, a little bit of intelligent thought to actually get something useful out of it. Right, and.
1: This is, It's an interesting point because we regularly talk about how you don't want to look at what's happening out there in the media and try to replicate your individual investment portfolio based off of that. You mentioned CPP. Yes, I'm not going to go buy a railroad because, quite frankly, I don't have enough money. But, but you also don't want to be trying to replicate exactly what maybe Warren Buffett's doing. Yeah, the CPP is hundreds of billions of dollars. Warren Buffett is also managing hundreds of billions of dollars. So trying to to look at well, what is Warren Buffett doing? Let me follow him. Maybe you don't have the same goals or objectives as Warren Buffett. The guy is one of the richest men in the world, and you know I, I feel pretty comfortable saying that his circumstances are slightly different than yours.
0: Well, it's, it's kind of called the halo effect. And the way I describe it to people is like you know, it, Sidney Crosby's morning workout like, oh, I want to go Sydney, do Sydney Crossey's morning workout. That's just going to end badly. I mean, I'm going to hurt myself. I'm certainly not going to be successful at doing it. And frankly, it's not the right thing for me to do. I'm, I'm not a hockey star in my mid-30s. I shouldn't be behaving like one. That's just dumb. I mean, to think you're walking around behaving like one. The Yale Endowment gets, gets, gets trotted out there. as a wonderful investment. And look, there's some really great, interesting reading to do about that. But to somehow take that as a model... For how I should build my retirement fund is absolutely ludicrous. But it's the halo effect. We, we 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 Here's something that's successful, and we want to be like that. You know, here are the five books that Bill Gates read this year. You know, here's the three things that successful CEOs do every morning. You know, you no, know, it's a halo effect. You know, it's, it's, there may or may not be anything interesting in what the top 50 CEOs do every morning. Maybe they drink a coffee. You know, they just you know, Ooh, I must drink my coffee at the same time. Maybe they just stop it. You know, just because you know, you're know you associating one level or one thing of success with something that's actually transferable, oftentimes it's not. And unfortunately, it's such a powerful reaction that we have. It's very easy for companies to answer that and say, ooh, you want this? Well, here it is. And you know they're going to be very successful with that. And it's the outcome that's not going to be as good. And unfortunately, that can take a long time to really show itself and can do some real damage to somebody's financial future.
1: Yeah, just to dovetail a little bit, it reminds me of uh, the study that Heather told me about last week. If you have a plant in your office, you're 12% more productive. So I stuck two plants in my office, so I'm 24%
0: more productive. I think you should put 50 plants in your office, Josh. I mean, how many plants can you fit in your office? We need that kind of production. (laughs) That's that's
1: too much production, I think, Colin. That's (laughs) too much production. That's too much. So wh- one of the other issues with these indexes and the proliferation of them these days, Collins, is something called a backtest. <laughs> and this is this is really an industry term uh, that we'll explain for our listeners. But these indexes come out, and again, they're being created by an individual with a certain set of rules, and all the always these rules are backward looking. So if I'm going to define a set of rules for my index, I want this index to look really great. And I look historically, I pull some data, I crunch all my numbers, and of course it's going to come out looking really good. This is what a back test is. You take the information historically and you test your set of rules today as to how it would perform historically. But there are a lot of issues with this. Maybe you can give me a few calls.
0: Well, because only the successful ones actually make it to market. So you can find patterns in data, you know, just, you know, just keep looking, you're going to find patterns. You know, one way I've heard it described is the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. And you basically take two guys with a case of beer and a case of ammunition, you set them in a blind, looking at the side of a barn, and they spend all day shooting at the side of the barn. At the end of the day, they walk over with a marker and they look for the tightest grouping of shots and go, yep, that's where I was aiming, right? So, you know, you can find patterns in data if you look hard enough and your computer is big enough, but there's no there's no reason for that to be predictive, right? Just just because it happened in the past, you know, in order for anything to have any predictive value, we could have another whole podcast on the, the stupidity of trying to predict stuff, but, you know, you have to really have a thesis that ties it all together. That you know, this is the data, and this is the pattern that we've determined. Here's the thesis on that data, continuing in that pattern going forward. You know, of course, i would say, "Oops, global pandemic," because there's a whole bunch of things that got disrupted last year because, well, there wasn't a global pandemic any anywhere in anybody's data. You uh, in order to you know plan properly for for 2020. Yeah. So
1: the the joke is, that I've never seen a back test I don't like, right? Because nobody's going to. Offer a product out there that's based off of a crummy backtest. So you're always going to be massaging that data to make it it look good to build something that looks good historically, and that's rarely going to 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 play
0: out in the future. Okay, we backtested this for 200 years.
1: Really? <laughs> Things have changed.
0: <laughs> so you you backtested this predating electricity. Good for you. <laughs>
1: yeah and this is why in the fine print on just about anything you'll see in our business it's past performance is not indicative of future returns right and and that's something that everybody needs to remember when they're looking at a back test the way that i i describe it here is it's like you know you lose the last three hockey games one nothing and you decide that going forward you only ever need to score two goals and you'll have a perfect season we know it's not going to play out that way <laughs>
0: Sorry to hear about
1: your hockey team, Josh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's been a disappointing few games, that's for sure. So we know that some indexes are created logically, some are maybe not created so logically, Colin. Uh, there's probably a couple high profile cases that we can look at where it just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Anything that comes to mind for you in that regard?
0: Well, my, when you say that, my mind goes to the sectors we talked about. Like you've got the ultra hot sectors that are showing up, uh, like the Bitcoin and different versions of Bitcoin and competing indexes in Bitcoin. Uh, the marijuana was a big one. Uh, you know, I, I, I understand that the GameStop thing is now a Reddit, you know, investment product that's that's, that's been launched. That's you know, supposedly has an algorithm that's combing the the posts in Reddit now to come up with a, you know. Now, again, I'm not sure if they're going to label that an index because if it's rules-based, there's going to be somebody out there that slaps the label of index, the, the Reddit index. I'm sure if I Googled it, I probably could find it. Um, but those are the ones that kind of leap to my mind. You, see, well, you tend to patrol on those podcasts a little more than I do. You, you must have had some more interesting ideas than the ones I've run into.
1: Well, yeah, I think you've, you've hit sort of the high points there. They have like the meme stocks indexes and all that stuff, which I don't even know what that. that that's describing these days. but uh, Even I'm too old for that, Colin. Um, uh-huh. I, I'll, I'll just go to something even more basic than any of that stuff. Is You just look at the Dow Jones. The Dow Jones has been quoted by everybody that's out there for many, many decades now. The Dow Jones is 30 companies, 30 companies based in the US. What is it representative of? Is it representative of the entire economy? No, not really. The entire stock market, there's thousands of companies just in the U.S. There's tens of thousands of companies in the world. So how representative is the Dow Jones really? And you hear people quoting it all the time. The bigger thing for me, and and this may really surprise some people, the Dow Jones is just a sum of the stock prices that make up it. So the prices of of the companies, the, the companies with a higher price for their stock, they have a higher representation in the Dow Jones. So we've talked about my lemonade stand before, Cole. My lemonade stand on the corner here, it sells for $1,000, but there's only one share. I'm the only owner. So if my lemonade stand was listed on the Dow Jones, it would be the most representative of any company that's in there because it's $1,000. Every other company that's in there is less than $1,000. So that doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense to me.
0: You know, Josh, you keep up with this lemonade stand. We have to rename our podcast to Josh's Lemonade Stand because you find a way somehow to bring your lemonade stand into pretty much every topic of conversation that we have. And I'm impressed that 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 that's really that that that's a really elastic mind that you're working with there. That's good. Yeah.
1: Well, just wait until I branch out into orange
0: juice. <laughs> So, Josh, we've we've talked through a lot of different things. And again, it's another one of these. uh, And thanks, everybody, for staying with us this long and going through it. Uh, Indexes and benchmarking are something that gets thrown around very quickly. They're headlines. uh, they, They provide a very summary judgment. It's a great shortcut. But hopefully we've been able to point out a few reasons why maybe it's not that simple. And you shouldn't be so quick to pull... Really solid conclusions based on very high level numbers uh that there is some nuance involved. it does involve a little bit of interpretation and and frankly, you're going to have to find somebody to help you with that interpretation, and you know we're those we're some of those people uh, so just make sure you're getting you're making decisions based on thorough information, not just headlines. to what you always
1: say, Colin, you need some perspective there, and that's what we can hopefully provide for you.
0: Absolutely. Thanks, everyone. This information has been prepared by White LeBlanc Wealth Planners, who is a portfolio manager for IA Private Wealth. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the portfolio manager only and do not necessarily reflect those of IA Wealth Inc. IA Private Wealth Inc. is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. IA Private Wealth is a trademark and business name under which IA Private Wealth Inc. operates.